Welcome to This Wildlife Podcast, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from across the globe. Every week, we'll be transporting you to somewhere new. To the vast plains of Africa, to the humidity of the Amazon rainforest, to the stunning coral reefs of Madagascar. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 6 of series 2. This week we have the pleasure of being joined by two exceptional individuals who are working to dismantle the illegal wildlife trade. William Brown and Dr Timothy Wittig are joining us today. William is the founder and CEO of Focus Conservation and their mission, as I mentioned before, is to dismantle the illegal wildlife trade by supporting governments and law enforcement agencies in investigating, arresting and prosecuting wildlife traffickers. Wim has 26 years of law enforcement experience, working as a special agent for the US Drug Enforcement Administration. His investigations have spanned across many continents, and Wim specialised in targeting organised criminal networks involved in drug, weapons and, of course, wildlife trafficking. Dr Timothy Wittig is a conservationist, applied scientist, author, analyst, systems designer and expert on wildlife trafficking and terrorist finance. It goes without saying, Tim has endless experience and expertise in the world of wildlife trafficking. Notably, he is heavily involved with a groundbreaking programme called the United for Wildlife Task Force, set up by the Royal Foundation of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, On a basic level, this programme is aimed at taking action against global wildlife trafficking and Tim has been directly involved with the mobilisation of over 150 of the world's largest banks, maritime shipping companies and airlines. Tim now also works alongside WIM at Focus Conservation as the Head of Intelligence. It's fair to say we really are privileged to be able to chat with both Wim and Tim today. So welcome both of you onto the podcast. It's a pleasure to have such expertise in the room today. So to start with, I think it's quite interesting to hear how you both ended up getting into this line of work. So in no particular order, Tim, perhaps we can start with you and ask more about your background and your career so far. Sure. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that uh, really kind introduction. Yeah, so uh, it's a good question, uh, how we got into conservation. <clears throat> so my background worked for um, the intelligence community, uh, U.S. intelligence community. I was also a professor of international relations. Um, and I guess originally, uh, I mean, I'm big, uh, always been an environmental, environmentalist and outdoor lover and, and things like that. Uh, but my actually my roommate in grad school, 
I guess, 20 years ago now. Uh, he was doing a PhD in biology and was a conservationist, ended up working for uh, Wildlife Conservation Society, uh, which I later worked for. And uh, so, so I think that, that kind of what sparked my interest originally, because he would talk, he lived in uh, Congo and he would talk about some of his work and uh, including like chasing posters and tracking arms movements across national parks and things like that. And I thought, I had no idea that conservation people uh, did, did anything like that, you know, and that was really uh, of interest to me. Actually, my original career was on counter-terrorist financing. And then, um, yeah, I, I gave a talk at the Bronx Zoo, I remember, uh, like maybe 15 years ago, on on kind of how we can apply the counter-terrorist financing lessons learned and methodologies to, to uh, wildlife trafficking. And then then when I was working for the military, the uh, the kind of the wildlife trafficking crisis really blew up around 2011, 12. <clears throat> yeah, and, and actually ended up doing a a lot of work within government on counter wildlife trafficking. Actually, that was an interesting experience because actually what I found was that there was kind of a whole maybe underground network of closet environmentalists working in the intelligence community uh, that were all kind of interested in, in wildlife crime and environmental crime. And uh, so, so I think that really kind of sparked that actually maybe we do have a place in this, in this space, you know, in the conservation space and we can do some good. Yeah, and then I kind of switched careers and uh, the rest is history, I guess. Wow, Tim, you really have launched an absolutely phenomenal career. And I think it is the side of conservation that people really just don't see or don't know about. So over to you, Wim, the founder and CEO of Focus Conservation, a world leading organisation. So would you mind giving us a bit of background into how you got into this line of work? Yeah, I mean, similar to Tim, you know, when I was a young guy, I was very much involved in conservation and loved the outdoors and you know, initially I wanted to be a, a, a ranger when I was coming out of high school and I said it didn't pay anything. So then uh, I took an interest in, in law enforcement. I was a police officer, then I'm a federal agent. And uh, I did a lot of work uh, later in my career. I worked in a special group called the Special Operations Division, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And um, a lot of our work was in Africa. So I first started working in West Africa and then East Africa. And uh, finally, at the end of my career, 2013 to 17, I became the country attache in Nairobi, Kenya. And I was responsible for nine countries there. And, you know, leading up to my tenure in Kenya, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of crossover in what the Drug Enforcement Administration was doing with the drug trade, but how it overlapped into, you know, narco terrorism and into human smuggling, weapons traffickers. You know, the, the shadow facilitators that are out there who are uh, facilitating the movement of illicit goods. And when I was in Kenya, I just saw a massive overlap with the wildlife trafficking that was going on. And uh, I saw an avenue when I, when I left DEA to retire to, to do something different. And uh, I was fortunate to meet Tim when he was in Kenya. And I started collaborating with him and, you know, we saw a lot of uh, the things that were going on in the current um, space of uh, conservation, where a lot of it is based, uh, law enforcement based, and uh, it, but it was being done by conservationists, not not belittling to them by any means, but they didn't have the expertise when it came to law enforcement and you know, the need to collaborate, share intelligence and information, and so I saw an opportunity to to start a, a nonprofit. Focus Conservation in January 2018. Uh, and I remember back in the day, Tim and I had traveled to Washington, D.C. together to talk about this global synchronization 
concept, this idea. And it was kind of poo-pooed way back then. And it was like, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? And I think people looked at Tim and I as, you know, uh, as new to this field and like, well, wait a sec, don't stir the pot. Don't, you know, keep things status quo. Um, and like, maybe you guys shouldn't be working together, but here we are full circle, 2021, uh, joined at the hip, um, on the same page. And I just, I'm just really fortunate. And I, you know, what we do and what I do is, is investigations going after the larger networks to disrupt, dismantle these individuals. It's not at the poaching level. And, you know, the sexy thing is it is, it really is. It's heartwarming because when you see poaching that takes place, you see the elephant shot or the rhino be horned, you know, but, but the work that we do is really about building capacity, building the mandated authority's ability to, to investigate. So that, that's, that's how I got here. Mm, well, it's completely fascinating. Now, I think I must have said illegal wildlife trade about a million times in the introduction. So for those at home who might not know what the illegal wildlife trade is or not understood it properly, could one of you perhaps explain what this really is and, and what you mean by the illegal wildlife trade? I mean, I'll just, from my side of it, I look at it as, as, as drug trafficking networks, right? So it's, it's not your street pusher on the, on the street that are just pushing little single products, but it's, 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 a, it's a network. It's, a, it's an organization that are moving, you know, protected species um, and, and doing it for the money and the funding. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more of about a bigger network in the trade, in the industry of moving those things to make the money. Tim can expand on that, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, putting on my academic hat, I guess. Uh, uh, so wildlife trafficking, I mean, it's another uh, illegal wildlife trade. It's a number of things. Uh, so I think one, it's, it's a major threat to conservation. It's a major threat to wildlife and biodiversity. Uh, you know, it's one, of the, it's one of the core threats. I mean, there's a lot of other things that are happening too, like uh, deforestation, habitat fragmentation and things. But, but illegal wildlife trade over exploitation, uh, commoditization of wildlife is it is really decimating species and, and you know one thing that's kind of an anecdote sometimes you go around places in africa or in asia or uh, even in europe uh you know other places and it's something called the empty forest syndrome you just there's just no wildlife at all you know and it's and it's and there's no wildlife because a lot of it's it's just been it's been poached or it's really just been taken and sold you know and um so it's it's really devastating from an environmental perspective but then from the human side and security side, it's, it's, it's really one of the biggest uh, and growing uh, forms of transnational organized crime and illicit trade. I think often it's said it's the fourth uh, biggest, but actually that's really only including animals, like the illegal animal trade, wildlife trade as an animal. But then if you include um, timber, you know, and flora, which is also wildlife, you know, uh, according to CITES, which is the UN Convention, you know, on endangered species. Uh, so then... Uh, so with animals, it's about 20 billion a year trade, you know, give or take a few. And then, uh, but if you include timber, it's up to like 100 billion, 100, maybe 150. So it's very big. And then actually contributed to a World Bank study that estimated the total kind of real cost. So if you include like lost revenue, you know, and uh, and things like that, then actually we're talking probably around a trillion or more dollars to scale between, you know, wildlife, flora, fauna, also illegal fishing, you know, and things. And then, I mean, even beyond wildlife, if you're talking about, you know, organized environmental crime, like illegal mining and things, and it's, it's, it's another 
uh, you know, multiplier beyond that. So it's really a huge, huge industry, illegal industry, global, and it's kind of the organized professional theft of, you know, natural resources and, and animal wildlife from uh, mostly developing countries. You know. mm. It really is staggering the breadth and, well, and concerning the breadth of this trade. And Wim, you've clearly had a knowledge of the trade for a long, long time. But on a personal level, did the extent of the trade surprise you when you started to dig into it more? And do you believe that as the organisation focused conservation grows, you will be tapping into more and more aspects of the networks within the illegal wildlife trade? Yeah, I mean, look at, you know, when you get into, when you start investigating into these networks, you're seeing the overlaps into the drug trafficking, the, the, the human smuggling, the weapons, all, all of that. So, so it's hard not to go after something and then hit into another, to another aspect. To me, it's very enlightening because it's enlightening to the intelligence community, to law enforcement to see that, you know what, all these networks that are operating in this space of illicit wildlife trafficking, are also involved in a lot of other illicit activities. You know, and we call it the soft underbelly of, 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 of these networks. So if you were trying to get into a network, a terrorist network that was financing through illicit wildlife trafficking, there's no better and no easier way to get into that network than investigate or get into the network through wildlife and then work your way. And when these, these sources penetrate into these networks, they don't just talk about one thing. They, they, these guys are criminals, so they know all criminals that are involved in a lot of different things. So, yeah, I mean, and then when you talk to Tim and you hear what he just said about the mining, if you put all that into the space, you really look at it, see how massive it is. Yeah, just elaborating on that a little bit on the finance side, one really interesting thing that we've seen a lot of actually is that illegal wildlife, not necessarily being traded for its own purpose, but... Uh, it's actually a it's a vehicle for laundering illicit assets gained by other crimes, right? So there's like a big, a huge case uh, where we had um, m- millions of dollars of sea cucumbers, uh, or actually millions of dollars of drug money connected to the Venezuela cartel, like El Chapo's ca- uh, cartel, being laundered through uh, sea cucumbers in, uh, th- through the United States. And so you need the money, you know. And then also we see. Kind of similar dynamic in Africa with Chinese organized crime and uh, using wildlife uh, not only as a way to make profit but also to launder uh, proceeds of other of other crimes or even just of of other um, economic activities like as a way for uh, to enable capital flight and you know export of currency and, and things like that. So it's because it's you, you can always sell uh, wildlife. You know, so I'll make an example. Sorry, just to expand just on that. What Tim talked about that was. You know, some of the work that we've done in East Africa, we saw that the networks that were moving a lot of the illicit products, you know, whether it's pangolin, rhino, elephant, over into Asia. So all, you know, their money is sitting now in Asia because that's where they're going to get paid from. And now you have businessmen that sit in East Africa that are purchasing Asian products. So now you have the, the money is actually paid by the illicit money in Asia. So in other words, these businessmen who are doing real work are going to the bad guy saying, well, you have your money there. Let's use your money to pay for it. That way I don't have to move my money back and it just makes it simple. Well, that's just, it's, it's amazing when you think about it, how they work. 
I must say, strikes me is that you think you know a bit about pangolin poaching, rhino poaching, but it really has dawned on me that this is just the tip of the iceberg and it's an incredibly complex network that lies beneath. So how are these goods, the rhino horn, the ivory, the tiger skins, the pangolin scales, how is this transported out of the countries? And why is it so difficult to stop these networks in their tracks? Uh, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example just from the drug side in the United States when I worked there, when we were talking about terrorism and, and you know, um, the containers. There's millions and millions of containers that come into the United States every day. And people think that every container is searched and it's not, right? So, so a percentage of these containers are, are searched. They have the ability to search. Otherwise, if they had to search every container, commerce would stop. So you just take that in, into perspective. It's the same thing over in, in Africa where we operate or in, in other locations, the, the ability to do that, or they may not even have the equipment. But second, secondly, it's the networks that are moving any other illicit goods, whether it's diamonds, whether it's humans, whether it's weapons, whether it's drugs, are moving illicit wildlife products as well. So there are businessmen that sit out there and they look at it and say, okay, what, what is it that you want moved? And I will move it to you because I have the ability to do that. Um, and whether that's done on plane, cargo, because there's a lot of these, these networks that have people that work at, at airports throughout Africa, Asia, United States, everywhere, that have the ability to move goods in and out without being seen. They use these networks. And Tim can talk, talk in depth about this from the transportation side because he's dealing a lot with the, with the transporters. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question uh, to ask about transport, how it's transport, because I think that's one of the well, one of the key bottlenecks. I mean, so on most, pretty much all illegal wildlife, uh, for the most part, moves commercially. You know, so it's on commercial shipping or it's on commercial airlines. You know, either in cargo or in passenger luggage or even on on people's person. And so, so pretty much, and actually because of that, that's why uh, United for Wildlife and the Royal Foundation and Prince William started this United for Wildlife Transport Task Force about five years ago now. And, and that was that started with 12, 12 companies. Um, but now the, now the task force actually is up to over 150 transport members, about 80% of the shipping industry. And, and I think that's been a really, really interesting experience because, and also very uh, rewarding, I think, because we've really, uh, together with the transport industry, you know, really kind of change the way things are done, you know, with, with transport because, because it really is a key bottleneck for this and, and a lot of, and it really can be uh, detected. Um, and then, you know, from ge uh, geographically, you know, these, these big ports, these major ports and major hubs, I mean, that's where uh, wildlife trafficking is happening, right? It's kind of major um, hubs. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's the same ports that the commercial shipping is, is being run through. And I think it's also important to emphasize it's not just Africa, you know, it's not just, and it's not just Asia. You know, there's a lot of um, goods that go through Europe. Um, and there's, there's big demand also in Europe and also North America. So, uh, as well as Latin America. Yeah. So, so what is coming through Europe? A lot of our listeners are European and, and I think they may be shocked mm -hmm. to hear that these products are coming via the European countries. Uh, well, so there's, um, there's a, a fair amount of, of goods that go kind of via Europe through, you know, from Africa to Asia, for example, or from Latin America to Asia. So it will go through like Rotterdam or Zurich Airport. There was a big seizure in Berlin 
airport. But actually, um, there's a, a Czech organized crime network. Uh, they're kind of ethnically Vietnamese, and they've actually been uh, involved in a lot of drug trafficking as well as rhino horn trafficking via Eastern Europe, uh, Central Europe. Uh, but then also Europe is a demand location, for, especially for kind of smaller species like uh, lizards and reptiles and, and things like that. Germany is actually kind of a problem country in a way uh, for, for, for that because uh, because they don't do a lot of enforcement actually on those issues and so so there's actually big uh there's a big kind of demand um and market for illegal wildlife in, in germany and um and in france and netherlands um bush what's called bush meat is is also a big issue um so that's not necessarily endangered species but uh primates or other things that are that are imported french customs did a a survey on the one of the flights from congo to paris and they found almost over 50%, I think, of the um, bags of, of the luggage, that luggage on that flight had bush meat. Yeah, so it's actually a major problem. And, you know, things often work work pretty well in Europe, you know, so I think the, uh, they underestimate the problem, but it's actually a big problem. And North America, I mean, the U.S. is a big demand location, especially for illegal wildlife from, from Latin America. I was just going to add to, to, you know, why Europe you know, why Zurich, why Rotterdam, you know, oftentimes, you know, they, these direct flights are coming out of Africa into Asia. They've been used and they've been burnt so many times. So now what they try to do is they divert it, right? So they'll fly through, do a connecting flight in, and they'll do the same thing with containers. Instead of going directly to Asia here, it'll go through Dubai or other locations, offload it, and then we shipped from there and sent on where people aren't looking at it. So, I mean, these, these people who operate are very smart. They're technically savvy and, yeah. Yeah, so a question to both of you. You only have to look at the media at the moment and it seems like we are at absolute crisis point with the illegal wildlife trade, especially when you're a layman person, just like me, looking in. It fills me with total despair when you look at the latest rhino poaching stats, another load of pangolin scales have been seized. You start doing the very basic maths and you think, hang on a second, we're only a few years away of seeing the extinction of black rhino and pangolin. So how bad is it? From yourselves, I'd love to know your point of view. I imagine many people will also be wanting to know if the illegal wildlife trade can be stopped or reduced before we run out of time. So what's your opinion on that? Tim, I think you should be starting on this one. Okay. Well, I think number one, I think to work in conservation, you have to be an optimist, you know, or else it would be impossible. <laughs> uh, but then, um, but I think, yeah, so I think it's it's um, it's a huge crisis, right? Um, and it, you know, the exact levels on, you know, depending on the species, that kind of ebbs and flows a bit. Uh, but I think COVID, um, COVID initially kind of, stopped a lot of trade just because you know movement was stopped between countries and things like that but then actually now it seems like well things were kind of getting better after kind of the really intense poaching crisis uh, especially on elephants and um also rhinos uh and then so but now i think unfortunately i think probably what we're looking at in the next couple of years is is kind of a reinvigoration of that of that intensity um on poaching and, and trafficking you know, so there's a lot of demand I mean, the demand has to change uh, it's going to be shifted a little bit yeah, so I think I think we're we're looking at a kind of another another crisis coming. And overall, I mean, overall, it's it's just uh, it just gets worse, you know. But on the positive side, there are things that are happening now on the response side on the that really have never 
been done before, right? So I think we actually have all the ingredients for success, you know, to win uh, and to end illegal wildlife trade. So, so I think actually, yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, actually. But you know, it really depends on our will we be able to do what what we know needs to be done. So if we do it, then I think we can actually end this problem. But if we don't, then we won't. And in, in my, my feelings uh, are that I think the stars are aligning. And, and what I mean by that is I, I, I see that that um, more people are collaborating in this space. You know, remember that uh, this space is really predominantly done by NGOs that are working with law enforcement entities throughout Africa. And there isn't a lot of, um, you know, big, big like, like the U.S. government, Europe, uh, European countries that are doing predominant work on the wildlife trade. I know that U.S. Fish and Wildlife, who is one of our biggest partners, is increasing and doing phenomenal work. But but a lot of these NGOs that are operating in that space worked in a silo. They were only concerned with what was going on in their space. So there was really little need or understanding of the importance to share. And what I see now is that there is this collaboration. This wall is being chipped away. People are working together. The, the space being professionalized in all aspects from the conservationists to the law enforcement side that are assisting and all that. The second thing I'll point out and in predominantly in, in, in Africa, China is a very major component here. Looking at the natural resources of this continent, I live on the continent and I've worked throughout it and I see what they're doing. They understand the importance of their relationships on this continent. And they also understand that they are getting a poor name in their activities of their citizens that are doing illicit wildlife trafficking. And that became apparent last year when China, after the EIA, who did a phenomenal job investigating throughout Africa and into Asia, released their report and really gave the Chinese a bad name. And they in turn, have now decided to take a step forward and tackle this issue, not looking for European or Western help, European or Western help and support, but going to the Africans to say, "Hey, look at these are our people. We know who they are. We want them back," and, and going after them. So, and that's strictly from an uh, economic standpoint. I don't think it's because they look at it, the poor rhino, the poor elephant, the poor penguin, or the other species. But, but that is a positive. And, and maybe that is leading into younger and the youth in Asia that may have a change of heart from looking at this from a medicinal standpoint or a prestigious ornamental standpoint when it comes to the ivory. So, yes, I think it can be beaten. I've worked in the drug trade my career, and I didn't see, I always said that the answer for that to solve that was at home. It's with your family, it's with your parents. This is this is a little this is different. It's a smaller space, you know. It's where the product where the, where the product is and where it goes to. So it's not it's global. You know, it's really interesting. So often we hear about the flagrant and seemingly never-ending use of wild animal products, and the Far East gets a particularly bad rep for it, mainly as you say for their use of rhino horn and, and pangolin scales. But it's not often that we hear reports suggesting that at a government level, China acknowledges the part it plays and almost takes responsibility and even better yet, seemingly uh, acts on it. So hopefully this really will increase in intensity in the coming decade. 
there also seems to me uh, that there's lots of different reasons why people use these these products, these skins, the horn. Um, and we're all very well aware of the false health beliefs that people quote. But it seems that there is a real potent belief that visible use of these products is used to demonstrate one's wealth or or social clout. You know, one of the things also is that people don't really look at is like, you know, take the cheetah, right? The cheetah is a status symbol if, you, if you're in, in the Emirates, right? If you're a wealthy guy, you have a cheetah. Not many people even consider that or even recognize that, that that's going on where cheetah pups are being stolen out of the wild, shipped in boxes, some of them not making it and going up there to these prestigious. Now, these things aren't hidden, right? These are status symbols where people have them at their house and their friends come over and see them. And it's, it, you know, that's just the other side of it, you know, or the radiated tortoises or, or, or the other products that are, that are taken. But it's yeah, that's, disgusting. that's hard. And do you feel like you become desensitized to this? Obviously, you are both complete professionals when it comes to this field, but I'm sure what you see and what you hear on a daily basis would push some people over the edge. So is there a kind of desensitization with the work that you do? You know, look at, I mean, I worked in Kenya and I was, I was the attache in Kenya. And, um, you know, one of the major things that, that takes place in Africa, and, I, and I'm not just picking on Africa, right? Because I worked in Central South America, U.S., you know, Asia. The corruption is always a major thing. Anybody trying to make money. So, you know, the people that work in these port facilities or whatever, who are, they're, if they're in a, a, official capacity, they're in it and they look at it and they say, look, and I'm in a position, I have this for four years. I'm going to make as much money as I want. I don't care what it is. It's not like I dislike rhino horn or elephant or humans, or weapons, or drugs. I just want to make money. And to me, that is, that's the side of it that, is, that really eats at you because it's just all about the money. And, and really, this is anything in this field really is about the money. It's not like anybody hates these animals. It's always about the money that's associated with it. And, and people get really upset with the poachers that, that live next to these conservation sites. But on the flip side, I look at it and say, here they live in this area. They're intermingling with these animals. You know, they see an opportunity. If, they're, if someone's going to offer me $3,000 to go kill a rhino, I'm going to do it. That'll feed my family forever. So they're just trying to make a living. And I think, you know, as much work as we do in building capacity with, with these law enforcement authorities, a lot of work has to be done with the communities that surround these conservation areas and get them involved in, in what's going on and let them see the importance and let them see the monetary importance. So, so like, you know, there's different ways to look at it and be negative towards it, you know, but yeah, that's, that's Tim probably has a view. As yeah. Well. And I think, you know, I think on your question, I think, you know, what, I think one of the differences with working in conservation, you know, individual animals is not, is not what you worry about. You know, it's more, it's the protection of the species. Although, you know, it's hard to see those terrific photos. Um, and like Wim said, also, I mean, the problem is not these, these local poachers. That's not, that's not the issue. It is the traffickers, the trafficking networks. And like Wim said, these corrupt facilitators in government and also business, you know, Practice of the world who are really, you know, they're destroying wildlife, they're, they're destroying the environment, but they're also destroying 
these countries, you know, like they're authoritarian, they're, they're corrupt, uh, they ruin, they ruin, they ruin things. Uh, and again, not just, I'm not just talking about Africa, you know, this is true everywhere. Absolutely. And what came to my mind is the idea that has been previously discussed on the podcast, and that is the idea of putting a price on wildlife for the communities that live alongside it. The idea of financially incentivizing the protection of the animals and ensuring that these animals are in are worth more alive than dead, however, seems a very tall ask due to the amount of money that could potentially be earned through poaching instead. From my own point of view, I think it'd be quite interesting to see how this plays out in the next few years. I mean, you know, one place where they've had uh, some good success is Nepal. And, you know, and one of the things that they did there was that they uh, actually made protecting wildlife kind of like a national pride issue. So actually, they they de- they decommoditized it completely. Um, you know, for an individual person, it's always going to be more money to just kill the animal than to wait for you know some kind of promised revenue. Because I think, you know, these communities need to feel ownership uh, over the land that they actually, they own. You know, it's not, national parks are not just the enjoyment of farms. You know, it's, it's their, their countries. Mm, what, what you say there about the local people having the right to their own land is something that keeps cropping up on this podcast. And I can see how them having ownership of their own land and feeling like they have some input is very much linked to the long-term success of conservation in in general. So so moving on, Wim, a a question to you. What is the most rewarding part of your work and and what keeps you going? Uh, You know, my background was law enforcement. I was in the military in the reserves when I was a young kid, but but it was all about working, you know, helping people and doing things like that. You know, when you get into the work in the drug trade and you're in it for so long, it just seems like a battle that you're never going to win. And um, I mean, I enjoyed every single day that I worked. I, I think I was very privileged to, to be with the DEA and to do some good work there. But, you know, having the ability to take the skill sets that I learned over the years and to apply that to combating illicit wildlife trafficking to helping, you know, the betterment of of the environment, the species that are out there. The people that are working in this space are phenomenal people. I love the African culture. So that's what keeps me going. You know, it's working in that space, knowing that you're actually trying to help other people and you're doing it for a cause that is just wonderful. And, uh, you know, I've been blessed to be able to, to have this going and then be surrounded by the people that I'm with. And, you know, Tim being one of those guys and, and the many other guys that work for Focus Conservation were guys that I worked with in the past over the years that, that are, one, passionate about Africa and passionate about the animals, but then have the ability to bring a phenomenal skill set into this space to apply. It. And it's not about the money, right? We're, you know, this is... You know, what I say to the people that work here, it's about, one, having fun, but doing a phenomenal job and being proud of the work that you do. And, 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 and that's what it comes down to. And, and I'm very blessed to have that and, uh, you know, and to have Tim especially. So that's what keeps me. Yeah. Definitely. And Tim, if I turn to you, could I ask you what the most rewarding part of your work is? And perhaps further to that... What has been the major highlight of your career so far? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think my answer is the same as Lynn's. It really is a field that you can you can really make a difference. It's like, so you really are changing things for the better. And then, uh, and also working with, I mean, there's just some awesome people. Uh, like, I mean, working with Wim is great. Uh, you know, there's tons of people uh, who are just doing some really inspiring things, really um, sacrificing a lot, putting their, putting their, sometimes their, their lives, you know, on the line. And, uh, you know, really for the betterment of, of the world, you know, so it's, it's really inspiring. Specifically, you know, one of the things that's been really rewarding actually is working actually with the private sector on conservationists, you know, because I think, you know, I, me included, you know, you think that in order to get into conservation, you have to be a ranger or you have to be, uh, yeah, you have to be a biologist. But actually, you really don't really have important contributions uh, from your day job. And so that's, I guess it's kind of like how being a teacher is rewarding when you kind of, you know, help someone have that light bulb go off. It's really interesting what you say there about the fact that people can have a really valuable contribution to conservation and stopping the illegal wildlife trade through typically non-conservation day jobs. So, So that's really great to hear. Now, my last question to finish this off then is... What do you think needs to happen on a global scale to successfully dismantle this horrific trade? That's a big question and uh, and a question to both of you. Yeah, from my side, I'd like to be out of business. Let's put it that way, right? Not need to be in this field, not to do the things that we need to do. Um, the reality is that we'll probably still be here providing some kind of support out there. Um, but I mean, I, I just I'd like to see I'd like to see cooperation, collaboration. I'd like to see the walls get knocked down. I'd like to see people working together. Uh, the trust factor that's out there, the need for people to collaborate. You know, the great work that's from the private public sector that, that Tim is doing, and and you know, I'll just expand on what Tim had mentioned earlier quickly. Is that you know, when I worked for the government, we would always go to the to to the institutions and say, here's a subpoena, give us the information. And they would give us information, but really didn't understand the importance of what they were providing us and how important that information was. And we never gave them the feedback, right? So they really didn't get it. But what Tim's doing now and through the Royal Foundation, and I don't know that we've given the Royal Foundation enough kudos here, but but really bringing in this private-public partnership is that they understand the importance of what the work is when they're sitting at a computer and, you know, and they have that free time and they know that, wait a second, if I start looking into these networks this way, if we're feeding them the intelligence, the information on how things are moving and how, how they, how these people are, are inter- doing the financials or the transportation, they can start doing this and they can go home and be that person and say, you know what today, you know, I spent 30 minutes on the computer, but I, I did something that supported a seizure of a, you know, a ton of elephant uh, tusk or whatever. That is it. Yeah. Tim? Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think, uh, actually, like with the Royal, with the Royal Foundation, the task forces and stuff, is that the goal is to make the countering wildlife trafficking as usual. I completely agree with that. You know, I think that's counter wildlife trafficking, the wildlife trade, be business as usual. It's something that is on the agenda for companies, for governments, for law enforcement, for intelligence agencies, you know, for geopolitics. It's not, it's not a niche issue only for, you know, those weird environmental people, but it, it's really kind of a core issue along uh, everything else. I mean, this is really the, 
I, I can't really think of there, there's more at stake you know, than the environment. So, I mean, it was, it's literally the entire planet. I want to add one thing, Tim. I'm sorry. This is, this is, I think this is very important, and this is something that Tim and I and some others, and what I want to make clear is that, you know, the work that Focus Conservation does is just a small thing. But there are so many other great NGOs that are operating out in this space that deserve the credit as well. And it's it's really there's 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 several of us that are working together to speak as one voice, you know, and and I think that is the important thing. When there is discussions out there, it's not coming from just focused conservation, but it's a number of NGOs that are working together that are speaking the same tone and the same message. And we want to build that. And, you know, we have some ideas that Tim is, is developing as well. And it, that, but I think that's the important thing is it's not about what we're doing, right? It's about what we're all doing. And I, I never want it to be about beating our chest saying, we did this, we did this. And it's, 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 that's not the important thing. I'm not looking for limelight. We know the work that we do. But it's really about working together with other people and making this work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everyone, everyone really has, really everyone needs to play a part if we're going to be successful. Well, it's safe to say it's been incredibly powerful to hear you both speak today. I, for one, are very hopeful at the thought that this devastating trade could be dismantled, especially with both of you heavily involved and at the helm. I think it's been particularly fascinating to get a better understanding of this complex web that is the illegal wildlife trade. Thank you very much for talking to us all today. It's been a real pleasure. And I I just want to, I also want to thank all those great African counterparts that are out there that are doing great work and and they need to be recognized as well you know those people that are working in this field and i don't think that they get enough recognition either um everybody talks about corruption but nobody talks about those people that are doing the right thing and doing good work so yeah and thank, and thank you amy for for having us but also for having this platform okay this year's and uh yeah It's been a total pleasure and for anyone listening and wants to find out more about Tim and Wim's exceptional work, head over to the Focus Conservation website and also the United for Wildlife website too. Tim, Wim, thanks again. You've listened to This Wildlife Podcast. Please do check us out on our Instagram page by searching for This Wildlife Podcast. You'll find loads of links and photos to our world-leading guests and often we have some competitions cropping up too. Of course, our main aim is to share the conservation stories that must be told. We're currently listened to in 52 countries, so let's try and beat that and get to 53 in this new series. The main reason to spread the word is we want these vital conservation messages shared far and wide and for people to be entertained and feel like they're connected to the wild areas of our planet, even from their homes. So if you fancy it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and please do subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does help us. So from everyone at This Wildlife Podcast, thank you so much for your continued support. We're delighted to have you along on the journey 
And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.